0: Give me Jesus So we are going to continue our study of the book of Ephesians. We're going to pick it up in Ephesians chapter 3 at verse 14. If you need a Bible, put your hand in the air and just keep it in the air and these guys will find you and bring a Bible to you. The title of today's message is Paul's essential prayer. Now, maybe you have the the same problem that I have there are times when I sit down to pray and my mind will just kind of wander away from what I'm praying and, and it can be so frustrating and you know let's say I, I sit down and and begin my prayer and I'm I'm praying for my mom, which I would often do and as I'm praying for my mom, my thoughts will kind of wander and I'll start to think about the house we grew up in in Garden Grove on Blake Street. And, and as I'm thinking about that house, my, my mind wanders a little further and I start thinking about, you know, my high school years and my 1964 olive green Plymouth Valiant with three on the tree. Wow, that was a great car. <laughs> Had these big meats on the back of it, had it all jacked up, looking cool. Had my eight-track player in it. I mean, I, I, I was styling. And and so as I'm wandering through all this, then I picture myself driving from my school over to Daniel's high school, and I'm picking her up, and you know, we're hanging out together, maybe going to the beach, and and you know, all of this is going on. Well, when I began the prayer, it was God-focused. But then it moved far away from him and really the, the prayer just became a succession of progressive thoughts and, and really kind of left the throne of God and got into my own mind. And, and, and sometimes even worse, it, it ends up just being a list of today's worries and concerns and the panic that's connected with these worries and and the reality is is what I need is a prayer list, and maybe you need a prayer list as well to kind of keep your eyes on the target. <clears throat> now, if you've ever done that, I don't want you to be too hard on yourself and 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 think you know really bad thoughts about yourself. It even happens to the very best. It happened even to the apostle paul, and i I got to admit though the Apostle Paul's lapse in his prayer was a little more spiritual than mine. And the one I just described to you, but it was in fact a time where he wandered in prayer. And let's, let's look at our text and see what happened in verse 14. It begins by saying, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, the, the lapse that I'm talking about can be seen like this. Paul actually began to write this prayer back in verse 1 of this chapter and then got a little sidetracked by making plain the mystery, which we looked at last time, verses 2 to 13. But now he returns to the prayer in verse 14, and, and it's really apparent if you read verses 1 and 14 together, they they just seem to go hand in hand. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, for this reason, I bow on my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's almost like that continuing thought that he begins the prayer and then Stops and parks it at verse two, and continues to to deal with the subject he was dealing with, and then just picks it up here in our verse fourteen. Now it, it's possible, maybe the apostle Paul needed a prayer list too, uh, but but he does. He comes back to this prayer now, and and I want to look at the uh, this essential prayer and the elements of it that Paul offers up on behalf of these Ephesian believers. Uh, The opening statement of our text this morning says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and this might seem or might not seem odd to you to hear the Apostle Paul say, I I bow my knee or I fall on my knees in prayer. So what what about this fact was uh, Paul kneeling before the Lord? You, you know first, we need to understand something about posture or position in prayer. the The idea of kneeling before the Lord is kind of a it gives the idea of, of maybe a, a position of surrender or submission to the Lord, uh, but there, there are all kinds of ways. There's no specific posture that we could find that we always should pray in this posture. In fact, there's sometimes, uh, oftentimes in the scripture, we'll see that they're standing before the Lord and they're lifting up hands to Him in prayer. There are other times when they're prostrate and they're falling Flat on their face before the Lord and in response to him or in prayer to him, uh, there's times where they're sitting. There's times when they're kneeling. Uh, now, as far as sitting goes, I wouldn't re- uh, I wouldn't recommend sitting in a recliner. To pray <laughs> that 's usually a bad posture, not that it 's like disrespectful, but you 're probably going to fall out before you finish praying, and you 're going to go to sleep. Uh, you know another you know thing we think about is i 'll just pray when I get to bed, you know and i 'll lay down in bed and my head hits the pillow and it 's Lord <sighs> you know and it 's like you don 't ever even get to it, and, and i 'm not saying you can 't pray in bed i 'm just saying it 's a bad time to try to target your whole Uh, prayer life with the Lord because the chances are you're gonna, you're gonna give out before your prayer list ends. And, and so it's probably not the best idea. But Paul's statement is interesting because it wasn't customary for the Jews to kneel in prayer. The, the custom for the Jew was to stand when they prayed. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll see them by the wailing wall, and you'll see the Hasidic Jews standing there and bobbing back and forth, and and they're standing as they pray. In fact, if, if you're on a, a flight to Israel or Really, just about anywhere now. I mean, we've experienced it going to Russia. If there's a Hasidic Jew on the airplane, there's specific times that they have to pray, and so they'll they'll get up at that time and they'll go to the, one of the little cubby holes on the airplane, maybe where the stewardess uh, or flight attendants—boy, that dated me—where uh, <clears throat> they would prepare things, and and they'll stand there and they'll just do their whole prayer routine as. They're bobbing back and forth. And and that was the typical way for the Jew to pray would be to stand and pray. And and so kneeling before the Lord indicated some uh, extraordinary event or some uh, point of passion on the the behalf of the one that was praying in that position. Uh, Some examples of this are with King Solomon. When he prayed at the dedication of the temple, he knelt on the bronze platform uh, before all the people and before the Lord, and he lifted up his hands to heaven in prayer. It's, it's recorded for us in Second Chronicles 6 verse 12 and 13 it says then solomon stood before the altar of the lord in the presence of all the assembly of israel and he spread out his hands for solomon had made a bronze platform 5 cubits long 5 cubits wide 3 cubits high and he had set it in the mind of the court or in the midst of the court and he stood on it knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. Then he he prayed that uh, dedication prayer for the temple. Uh, it was a special event. It was an event that that kind of brought him to a passionate plea before God. And so instead of just standing there with his hands lifted, he dropped to his knees and petitioned the Lord on behalf of the nation when Ezra had uh, heard from the exiles who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, he, he heard from them that they had once again entered into these uh, Relationships with the pagan women and, and so there were intermarriages and, uh, it, it was just something that was, they were supposed to stay away from. So when Ezra heard about this and he heard that they had gone right back to the things that they were punished for, um, he fell to his knees before the Lord. It's in Ezra chapter 9. It says, At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fastings, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. And and so you can you can hear as he's really kind of just repenting on behalf of the nation and talking about the grief in his heart over what they've done there's this passionate prayer to the Lord and he he falls to his knees to pray this prayer Also king uh Darius who who was duped into making a petition or a law that no man could petition any god but the king uh, he, he writes this into law and it was supposed to last for 30 days. Well, you remember Daniel, he wouldn't be deterred by this law, this decree that was put out. And he went to his room and he humbly fell to his knees and he prayed, knowing that he was going to be observed by the people that had duped the king. That's found in Daniel chapter 6. In verse 10 it says, Now when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went home, And in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom in the early days. And so he makes this passionate plea before the Lord, even though a decree had been put out and that he was going to be punished for doing this, he still falls to his knees and he prays. Now, Paul, in the New Testament, he made this, this tearful goodbye to the elders in Ephesus. And when he met with them and, and there was, there was a lot of passion in what was being shared with them and, and the fact that he was never going to see them again, it says that he fell to his knees and prayed with them. That's recorded for us in Acts chapter 20. Verse 36 to 38, it says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would uh, see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And so we see that Paul had experienced this time of a passionate response to something that was happening, and he falls to his knees. Now, last but not least, in no way least, Jesus sets the example in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion. Jesus fell to the ground in that agonizing emotion over about, about what was uh, uh, going to take place in the very soon future. And and so he falls to his knees and he prays to the Father. In Luke chapter 22, verse 41 to 42, it says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so you picture Jesus knowing that he's about to die and take the sin of, of every person that was ever going to live upon himself. Now, this is a man who never experienced sin, never experienced separation from his father at all. And he was about to go to the cross and be crucified. And in that moment of, of clarity about what was in front of him, he falls to his knees and he prays this passionate prayer to his father, saying, Father, I I know that this has to happen, but if there's any other way that man can be redeemed, let it be done that way, but not my will, but yours be done. And and so he, he prays. Now, here in our text this morning, when Paul writes this prayer, he does it with this same kind of passion, and he Falls to his knees and prays for the people in Ephesus. First, I believe it was a, an intense emotion of of what the Lord had just revealed through Paul. I mean, he had he had spoken to Paul and. Um, we we saw that he was even sidetracked in his prayer, and and he began to relate this information to the to the Ephesians about the the fact that the Jew and the Gentile all come through Christ; that we're all the same; that there's no division between the two groups, and 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 the Lord had just brought clarity to this, and. Uh, and so he had just finished explaining this and and so God had spoken this truth to paul as as he related it to them, and how awesome it is to see a man of God fall to his knees because of god's word and the truth of god 's word and and I think there's a there's a message there for us that that begs the question how How long has it been in your own personal life with the Lord, since his word has caused that kind of reaction, that that it would grip you in such a way that you would drop to your knees and just begin to petition the Father. Whether it's through your own devotion or, or sitting in a, a Bible study setting and listening to teaching, but, but when the truth of God goes forth and somehow just grips your life and it brings you to that point where you, you have to respond. Church, I think the, the times, the gaps between that are way too long for us, and, and me included. I'm, I'm not just saying you. I'm saying for all of us, the gaps are probably too wide. The Word of God should grip us on, an, on a regular basis. It should, it should challenge us. It should cause us to, you know, be attentive to what the Lord is saying to us and how He would want to direct our lives. The second Thing that that I think brings him to his knees in deep passion is is this idea. He says, "Before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven on earth derives its name." Y- you know, when Daniel and I finally get a chance to sit and talk about things, and and there's no distractions, and we can just kind of kind of you know breathe that sigh of relief and just kind of talk about things. It, it isn't long. Actually, it's usually one of the first topics that we talk about is our children and our grandchildren. You know, we, we talk about what's happening in each of their lives, maybe conversations that we've had with with them, and, and, and we just love to talk about family, and we love to congratulate each other on the fact that our grandchildren are perfect. <laughs> you know, I was teaching down in Rialto last week at a marriage uh, conference, and, and I was talking about the fact that our our grandkids are perfect. Well, we have three of them living in our house right now for a short time. And, and I said, they're perfect, but they're messy. <laughs> I had to, to kind of qualify their perfection. But uh, the reality is even their messes are cute. So it's all good. <laughs> but we, we truly love our own, don't we? We love family. We love our, our family. And they're, they're our joy. And they know that they are our joy. And and so, so it was with Paul's realization of his relationship with his heavenly father. Paul knew that he was loved, and that knowledge put Paul on his knees. He, he fell to his knees because of these two realities. First, the truth of God's word and how it resonated with him. And second, the, the fatherhood or the love of God upon his life. This realization sends him into what, what I call this essential or effective prayer for the Ephesian believers in the verses that follow. And, and, and I want to take some time just to consider the elements of Paul's prayer on their behalf. And remember, this is a, a passionate plea. We can, we can see that by the description. This is something that was, was deep in the heart of Paul as he was interceding and praying for these Ephesian believers. And let's let's look at verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Paul's intercessory prayer on behalf of these Ephesians is... Amazing. The the newer translations, if you're reading one of the the newer translations like the NIV, the NLT, or one of those, it, it probably says "out of his glorious riches." Now, I think that's actually a, a kind of a lesser view of what the original word meant. And and if you have the King James or New King James, I think the the translation is actually better, and it says "according to the." glorious uh, his glorious riches the word in the original language is kata and and it means according to or in in accordance with and and there is a significance difference between the two and let me illustrate it like this for uh, a millionaire if if they were to give to a charity and they were to give $50 or $100 to a charity that would be giving out of their wealth. It really isn't something that would, would be any kind of sacrifice to them at all. It would just be something they could do out of the wealth that they have accumulated. However, if that same person were to give 25000 or 50000 that would be according to their wealth. That, that would be something that would be in line with what they are able to give. And, and so uh, the greater a person's wealth, the greater his gift must be to qualify for being uh, according to the person's wealth. Now for God to give according to the riches of his glory is absolutely staggering with that picture in mind. Because his riches are unlimited. They're they're limitless and uh, they're they're completely without bounds and yet uh, that is exactly the measure by which Paul appeals to God to empower these Ephesian believers that it would be according to His glorious riches the the abundance of everything that God is that He would supply their strength. And, and you know, when I'm praying for you as a member of this church, this is a similar prayer that I have for you on a weekly basis that God, through His riches, His glory, would reveal Himself in such a way that we can, we can take from His glory and, and be strengthened in, in the way that we live our life as individuals and corporately as a church according to the riches of God's glory. Do you realize how wealthy that makes you? Now, some are saying, "Well, I'm not that wealthy. I'm kind of in poverty right now." Not spiritually, you're not. You might not have two nickels to rub together, but you spiritually are rich beyond measure because we are we are receiving from uh, the Lord whose glories and riches are endless in a spiritual sense. He never runs short. In fact. He he has so much at his disposal. He can meet all of our needs at the same time. And not just all of our needs here. He can be meeting needs in Russia, Uganda, the Philippines, Mexico, and Apple Valley all at the same time. And he'll never run out. His resource is endless. His blessings are limitless. There's no bounds. So rejoice in the riches of his glory this morning. Almost every prayer that you see Paul pray that that's recorded for us in the scripture was about the the spiritual welfare of others even while he's imprisoned remember he's writing this from prison even when he was being persecuted in 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 need of many things for his own welfare i mean paul had many probably many physical needs that that could be attended to he Prayed primarily for fellow believers, that they might be spiritually protected and strengthened in their understanding and in their relationship with the Lord. I mean, even when he prayed for himself or or asked others for prayer, it was most often for the purpose of of being better able to serve uh, the Lord and the Lord's people in some way. In fact, later on in this letter to the Ephesians, in chapter six. Uh, Paul asked the Ephesians to pray for him. And this is what he says in verse 19. And for me, the utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And again, he's writing this from prison. and, And instead, you know, if I was in prison falsely, I would be like sending out every smoke signal I could send out for everybody to come to my aid and to help me get out of this mess. I mean, that I had to be so self-consumed with, with being in prison. But Paul, he, he says, you know, I'm, I'm in prison, but will you pray for me? Pray that, that I'll have a better voice, and I'll be able to more clearly present the gospel message whenever I get opportunity? Man, I want to pray like that. So it might, might not be a bad idea to pattern our intercessory prayer in this manner. And and he, he says so that the the inner man will be strengthened, that, that we would draw everything that we need from God so that the inner man would be strengthened. You know, when the inner man is fed on a regular uh regular basis on the Word of God and and seeks the Spirit's will, all in in all the decisions in life, the believer can be sure that our life will be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit. And it'll be a spiritual power that's, uh, you know, a lot of times we think a spiritual power is the mark of some special class of Christian. You know, the Apostle Paul, he got a special dose. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same promise to every believer to have God's power working in our life. And and so for every Christian who submits to God's word and to his spirit, we we have this promise. But but like physical growth and strength, spiritual growth and strength does not come overnight. It's a process. It takes a while to, uh, to kind of formulate. As we discipline our minds and our spirit to study God's word, to understand God's word and to live by it, we are nourished and strengthened in our inner man as Paul calls it. And so Paul prayed that strength would come through the Holy Spirit, that, they, that it would be put into their inner man. So spiritual strength is the first attribute of Paul's essential prayer. I love what one man said about his relationship with God. He said, God had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. <laughs> it was an unbeatable combination. So true. Bring your weakness to God, and he'll add his power. And and so Paul prays for the spiritual strength in the inner man. That's a strategic point to note, that the focus of Paul's prayer and, and God's strength was the inner man, not the outer man. He didn't want just people doing religious things. He needed to go to the core of who they were and who we are today. And he goes on in verse 17, And he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this the second petition, Paul prays that that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. In Galatians, Paul wrote this in chapter two, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, in Christ has been kind of the premier teaching of this letter thus far, but now he shows that it's Christ in us. J. Vernon McGee says it like this, in Christ, that's our position. Christ in us, that's our possession. And and so, yeah, we have that position of being in Christ, but but we also have Christ in us. So when when a person comes to the realization that they're a sinner and, and that they're separated from God and that they, uh, their eternal destination is hell and they recognize that and they pray and they say, Lord, I'm, I'm a sinner. I have sinned against you. I, I believe that Jesus died for my sin. I want to invite you to come into my life and to, to change me and make me a new person. When we pray that prayer, we're we're giving an invitation for Christ to dwell in us. In our heart of hearts, to make himself at home in our heart. And Paul prayed for them to have assurance that Christ was in them. Why why is that so important? Even for us today, it's important. We already know that he brings strength to our weakness, but he also brings presence to His presence into our life on a daily basis for every decision, every uh, thing that we would contend with. His presence is there. And, And this addresses so much. It addresses peace in our loneliness, stability in our crazy, chaotic lives. His presence brings an awareness of the Lord in our daily lives and the choices that we make so that we will honor him. This is why Paul said to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 5 and 6, he said, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? He's writing to believers, and he's saying, you know what? Make sure. Test yourself. Challenge yourself. Is Christ in me? unless indeed you are disqualified, but I trust that you will know that you're not disqualified. Our qualification is in him. And and so we want to know for sure that Christ is in us, that he has established a home in us. Examine your heart this morning. Is Christ in you? If so, is he at home in you? He continues his prayer. Continuing in verse 17, he says that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints. What is the width and length and depth and height and know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. So being made strong in the inner man by God's spirit leads to Christ being at home in our heart, which leads to uh, an understanding of this love that is, is said to be incomprehensible. And, and so uh, the result of yielding to the spirit's power and submitting to the, the lordship of Jesus in our hearts is an understanding or a knowledge of his love. Now our text calls us to consider this infinite love of Christ. And, and the four degrees he lists here the width, the length, the height, the depth, they're all expressions of the vastness of God's love. These dimensions can can suggest number one that a, a love which is wide enough to embrace the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son for the whole world. His love is wide enough to encompass anyone who would put their faith in Christ. Anyone in this world can be saved. Because of what Jesus has done. And so his love is wide enough to embrace the world. Number two, his love is uh long enough to last forever. First Corinthians thirteen eight tells us love never fails. It goes forever. Speaking of God's love, Spurgeon said this It is so long that our old age cannot wear it out. I should hear Amen from all of us who are above fifty So long our continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your successive temptation shall not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. Powerful. His love never fails. It's endless. It's long enough to last forever and ever. Number three, his love is high enough to take sinners to heaven. Back in Ephesians 2, in verse 6 through 8, he says, And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so his love is high enough to lift us us up to the heavenlies. What a blessing it is to know that. And to know that surety that we're positioned in Christ in the heavenlies, the highest point. And number four, our love is, his love is deep enough to take Christ to the very depths to reach the lowest sinner. In Philippians 2, verse 7 and 8, but made himself of no reputation, speaking of Jesus, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Jesus left heaven. He took the lowly form of a man so that he can go to the lowest point so that there there isn't anyone who would be disqualified from salvation. That anybody that would recognize his act on the cross, was done on their behalf, could be saved. It's deep enough to get to the lowest sinner. And so these four degrees describe an infinite, unfathomable love, width, length, height, depth. Tozer said it like this in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning because he is eternal. His love can have no end because he is infinite; it has no limit. Because he is holy, it has; it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is incomprehensibly uh, vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. There's no end to his love. It's so vast. Folks, the love of Jesus is truly incomprehensible, but Paul prays for them to comprehend that we may have power together with all the saints to grasp this and to take in all of these dimensions of his love and to understand how much God loves us and to literally take hold of them, to seize them. To He, he knows it's impossible but he calls us to seek to understand. And Paul calls for them to be filled with the fullness of God. You see, to understand God's love is to understand that fullness that he brings to our life. Filled with the fullness of God. Now, the heavens and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. Yet Paul says and prays, may God fill you with his fullness. That's my prayer for us this morning, that you and I would be touched and filled with the fullness of God. God, fill us with your fullness, the richness of what it means to know you, the understanding of your love, the fullness that it brings. And may May we be so filled that there's no room for our flesh in our decision-making. God, fill us with your fullness. And so his prayer has these elements for strength in their inner man, that Christ would dwell in us, that we would know the love of God and that we would be filled with his fullness. And then he closes the chapter with these words in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's benediction to this chapter, and it's a great encouragement if you think about it. You know, when we began the book of Ephesians, I told you that that the way Paul laid this letter out, the first half of the letter, it, it really speaks to our position, the benefits that we have in knowing Christ, all of the spiritual uh, blessings that that we have being followers of Jesus. And, and so for these three chapters, we've looked at all of these things that that are ours because of him. and And now as we move into the next three chapters... It's going to deal with specifics that should be our response. And he's going to get real pointed about things that should be changing in us as believers. And, and, and so it, it's, it's hard to read those three chapters because it's very detailed about us. And, and so it's good to know this benediction before we move into those chapters. As we prepare to move into them and, and we, we, Kind of look at the instruction that's ahead. It's good to know that God is able to do in us more than we can even imagine. I mean, because because when you read through the the last three chapters, you're going to look at that and say, you know what, I'm I'm not all that, and I I don't know if I can pull that off. I mean, there's a lot of instruction there about things that I should be doing and things that should be changing, and and I don't think I can do that. Well, it's good to know that God is able to do it in us and that that he promises to do uh, above what we can ask of him and what we can even think in our own mind we are capable of doing. God is able to do more than that in our lives, immeasurably more than we can even imagine. This is an awesome promise to hold on to because most of us see ourselves like Paul in Romans 8, 7, 18. He says, for I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells for it is uh, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. A lot of times we, we look at our life and we say, you know what? I, I think I want to. I just don't seem to pull it off. I, I don't do the things I want to do. And so if if that's really the way that I'm living my life, how uh who's able to bring such things to pass? Well, only God can do it because he can do way more than my ability to even understand. He's at work in me in ways to change me. He's at work in ways to change you to make you do things you never thought you would do. Come Wednesday night and you'll hear that from the people sharing about Uganda you'll find out God can do things in you that you never thought were possible because he's God. And and so this is a great truth to hold on to, that that God can can not only do more than we ask and not only do more than we think, but exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Is your God too small for that? Then get a different picture of God. God. He is able because he's God. See, when the church understands and walks in God's eternal purpose, God will be glorified and the church will fulfill its important duty of glorifying God. His great power working in us will bring glory to Jesus. And as a Christian, this is his promise to you and to me. His abundant love, that immeasurable power is available for the asking so that we can be that vessel that he uses to carry this important message. You know, we know Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles and we we look at Paul's ministry and say, yeah, you know, God used him powerfully. You know, we have that same calling to the unsaved today that we can present that message. We can be mindful of the glory of God and sharing that with people around us. Now, maybe you think, well, you know, I I don't know, Pastor. If you only knew my life, then you wouldn't be saying that. I know my life. And I know that God is able and that he equips and that he does things that are way beyond us. And so trust him. Step out in faith. Let him use your life for his glory. In Christ, you can do it. Because Christ is in you. You can do it because that inner man is being strengthened because you have that understanding of God's love. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Amen. Now, maybe you're not a Christian yet and you came here today and you're just kind of checking it out. Well, I hope you heard in this message how much God loves you. He loves you so much that he allowed his own son to die for you. And the Bible says if we will put our faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross, that our sin will be forgiven, that he will come and dwell in us. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray and ask Jesus to be your Savior this morning. Please respond to that prompting in your heart right now. Let's pray together. Lord, I I pray that you would minister to each of us who are believers in this room, Lord, that you would help us to understand how you want to strengthen our inner man, that Christ is in us, and that, Lord, your love has no end. The riches of your glory have no limits. Lord, may we know that power. May we know the fullness of, of what it means to be your child. And then, Lord, will you use our lives for your kingdom, for your glory in some way this week, Lord? Give us opportunity to share. And, Lord, I pray for those that may have come that that need to establish a relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would make clear this gospel message. So I want to give you that opportunity right now to pray and to ask Jesus to be your Savior. If that's you, will you put your hand up in the air so I can see it? I want to lead you in a prayer to receive Jesus as your Savior. Anybody at all? Lord, again, what a, what a joy it is to be your child. Lord, may you fill us to overflowing with your presence, we pray.